rest to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out for their appointed times in history the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you, your own poets, have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image to be made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they, when they heard about the resurrection, resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people began, became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, all right, all right. Uh, in case you were wondering, this is my copy. Nobody come up and drink it, all right? That's a joke I gave twice this morning, and it went over great both times. <laughs> all right, before we hop into the message this morning, I just want to draw uh, your attention back to one thing that Ashley said. Uh, on August 25th, we have Back to School Sunday, which is always a really fun day. Uh, this will be the third consecutive year where we will eat tacos, and that is a pastoral directive of mine, because if I had uh, the ability, I would say everyone has to eat tacos every day, all day, for the rest of their lives. At least that's what I would do for myself. So, uh, so that's what we're going to do. But I wanted to just draw your attention. Uh, we really want this fall to be uh, a time when people kind of come back from vacation uh, and kind of come in back into the fold of our community, to be honest with you. Summer can be uh, a little bit of an um, adjustment for church. But the fall is this beautiful time, especially in the Cedar Valley, uh, with energy and life and focus. So I want to encourage you, if you have any friends uh, in, the, uh, in and around us who uh, don't have a church home, this is a great day to invite them, tell them that they can sit with you and come back. Uh, and come back and do that and have and eat lunch with us and just get to know our church community a little bit better. And the second thing uh, that we want to focus on that day uh, is receiving an offering for Chi Alpha. We understand that um, Chi Alpha, the campus ministry that our church is associated with uh, that meets over at UNI, um, 
that some people in our congregation don't always know exactly what happens over there. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, some voices from Chi Alpha, both share some stories about uh, what takes place there, uh, as well as um, just tell us a little bit more about that, what that ministry does uh, and how they're effective at uh, reaching the campus. So um, the, over the next couple of weeks, you can look forward to hearing from that. And I just want to encourage you that as we uh, think about that offering in three or four weeks, that you think and pray about it in the coming days because, um, yeah, because I think that's something we should do. All right? All right. So let's get into the message today. If you have your Bibles, you can keep them open to the teaching text that Ashley began with. All right. You know, in our culture, in, Amer- in 21st century American culture, I've been seeing a headline pop up from time to time in the news. It's that, uh, and this headline is that in the Western world, in America, religious, in- religious adherence is going down. Have any of you seen this? It's reported from time to time. And the reason it's reported is because there's data to back this up. Just this year, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest uh, Protestant denomination in the United States, uh, recorded on their own that their attendance or their adherence is lower than it has been in over 30 or in about 30 years since 1987, which even with all their megachurches, right, and all the perceived growth, their numbers are actually kind of going down. And the Pew Research firm also issued a poll of millennials in 2015. And they found that 34 to 36% of those polled considered themselves to have no religious affiliation to speak of. And this is down significantly from another poll that they did in 2012. So a significant drop in just three years. And it's interesting, when you look at this data, on the surface of it, it would seem that uh, generations that are coming up now are considerably less religious than generations that came before them. And these type of stats have led many papers and news outlets and organizations to fire off editorials about the loss of religion in America. But when you really look at these things a bit closer, when you uh, zoom in a little bit, what you find is that it it may not be the case that people are becoming non-religious so much as people are becoming less willing to affiliate with what they would consider organized religion. Because a greater number of people are reporting that they are spiritual but not religious. Have you heard this phrase? It's a popular notion. It's one you hear really all the time. And in culture now, there are a number of religious and pseudo-religious beliefs floating around that people are latching onto. One of the pseudo-religious beliefs that people are kind of latching onto and using as a narrative that could give their life structure and purpose is something called New Stoicism. Have any of you heard of New Stoicism? You can raise your hand if you've heard of it, because that helps me. Nobody. Welcome to school. Uh, <laughs> it's become this really popular set of uh, philosophical beliefs among entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley executives and podcasters. It's basically the reemergence of, a, of what is really a watered-down version of the ancient Greek religious philosophy of Stoicism. Uh, some, of the mo- some of the most famous people, people whose names you know who adhere to this kind of new form of Stoicism are people like Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, Mark Cuban, the guy who owns a basketball team, Warren Buffett, that guy from Omaha. They all claim to live by Stoic philosophy. 
And Tim Ferriss, you, might, you may or may not know that name. If you're on Facebook, I'm sure you've seen his face because he's all over the place. Um, but he's a podcaster. He wrote a book that was a New York Times bestseller called The 4-Hour Workweek. He's a vocal proponent of this new Stoicism. And he sums it up by saying that it is a simply and, a simply and immensely practical set of rules for better results with less effort which is a horrible definition, <laughs> to be honest with you. To me, this sounds like a Saturday afternoon infomercial version of Stoicism. Like, it slices, it dices. <laughs> it, it, it's a simple set of rules that helps you accomplish twice as much in half the time. Uh, it, it's kind of a modern American watering down of a pretty, uh, pretty complicated philosophical perspective. If it helped me make beef jerky and banana chips in my food dehydrator, maybe I would go for it, but, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, but that's not what it is. It is a, a new form of philosophy that people are clinging to as a means of giving their lives coherence and meaning. It's something, it's kind of a pseudo-religious belief, something that people can adhere to and, and as they walk away from what would be predominant religion in American society. But this is just a symptom of the fact that we live in a world of competing ideas. More and more, we live in a world that is becoming more diverse religiously. And in some ways, it's becoming more religious, not less religious. The internet and the, and the proliferation of ideas and the speeding of information has made all these ideas, all these philosophies, all these ideologies simply more available and what it's doing is not taking away belief. It's not making people become a-religious. It's actually kind of fracturing our belief into a million little pieces. Religious belief in America used to be pretty singular. There were simply a bunch of different types of Christians, right? There were Catholics and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists, but they were all pretty much Christian. But fast forward to today, and we are awash in different religions, philosophies, ideologies, all vying for our attention, all vying for our allegiance. And you may not think of it this way, but every time you turn on the TV, every time you listen to a song, every time you read an article online, every time you passively consume a podcast as you drive down the road, you are imbibing one or multiple of these different ideas about life. And many times we're not even aware of it. And in a world like this, in a world that is becoming increasingly more complicated and fractured, it is important to discern what it is that we are consuming, what it is we are taking into our hearts and our heads. And speaking as a Christian, it is really important to know how to move through the world in a generous and loving way while still understanding where the lines of difference are between what I believe and what others are kind of sending my way through all of these different forms of media. You know, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is about ready to send his disciples out on a little mission to do what he had been doing, to, to preach about the kingdom of God and to pray for people and to pray for people's healing and deliverance. But before he sends them out, he says this thing that seems a little strange the first time you read it. But before he sends them out, he tells them to be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as snakes. As innocent as doves and as shrewd as snakes. Meaning that Jesus understood that to navigate through the world, his disciples must walk in love, but also in wisdom. 
And in our world today, I think it takes a great amount of wisdom to be able to discern the difference between the, the Jesus way and all the other ways of life that are floating around us, vying for our attention. And this is why I think today's teaching text is so valuable for us. Because in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching about Jesus in Athens, where all kinds of different philosophies and religious ideas crash into each other in this one place. And it is into this environment that Paul comes preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. And this story is incredibly instructive, I think, for followers of Jesus who are trying to live wisely in our current culture. So if you want to be a wise follower of Jesus, I think you've come to the right place, all right? Or if you don't, then you don't have to listen. It's great. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I would encourage you to open to Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. I would encourage you to bring that along. As has been happening in this series on the book of Acts, we've been covering a lot of ground because the book of Acts, is, there's a lot of narrative, and so we've been picking out big sections of Scripture, and so it's helpful for you uh, to be able to follow along to figure out where we are in the passage. The second thing I would encourage you to do is take notes today. If you have a bulletin, there's a space on the back for notes. Uh, even if you crumple that up and throw it away on your way out, you will retain more information for having written things down than you would if you hadn't before. It's called kinesthetic learning. It's something that's important for me to do as a, somebody with a slight learning disability. It helps me remember. And also, if you run across an idea in this teaching today that you want to look up later, it's helpful to write it down, and then you can go back and look it up. All right? All right. So, now, in this passage in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul finds himself in this very religious and philosophically contested space. He finds himself in Athens, And honestly, Athens in this day was not so much different from our world today. Athens, as you may or may not know, was one of the most famous cities in the world at one time. Uh, And it had been, at one time, truly great. But by the time Paul gets there, it had lost a little bit of its luster. The population of the city had gone down. It was not the center of the world like it had once been. But yet, it it was symbolically important in the Greco-Roman world as a seat of the, some of the highest forms of learning. So uh, one commentator I, said, I read said that um, Athens was not as big or as important of a city at the time of Paul as it was just a couple hundred years prior to this, but that it was a tourist trap, which is funny to think about, that people from all over the world were visiting Athens and walking around and looking at its, its statues and uh, exploring uh, its architecture and learning from its history You know, Athens was the birthplace of democracy. You know this? So if you like to vote, you owe it to the Athenians. But while much of the world was walking around Athens and marveling at all that they had accomplished and all of the ideas that they had churned up and all of the things that they were and represented, Paul, in our passage for today, is walking around Athens, waiting for two of his friends, apparently, to come and join him. And he becomes greatly distressed, the text tells us, greatly distressed by the fact that he is seeing all these different idols and statues strewn around the city that are dedicated to all these different gods and goddesses. 
Because even though Athens was the world capital for philosophy and ethics and democracy, it was also awash in, in the worship of images carved out of stone. So religious were the people of Athens that they even had idols dedicated to unknown gods in hopes that they could cover all of their bases, right? You don't want to get caught in a situation where you don't have an idol to that one god who's really important and then you're in trouble, Right? And Paul is a Christian as he's walking around Athens, but he's also a Jewish man. And from the time that he was a boy, probably before he could even remember, he had the second commandment drilled into him. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. And as he walks around the city, the the city that has more idols than any other city in the known world at the time, he is greatly distressed. One translation that I read uh, translated this word greatly distressed, revolted. He had a physical response to what he saw. And so because of this response to what he saw, all the idols that he was seeing in the city of Athens, he goes to the Jewish temple and he begins to talk, to dialogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks about all the religious stuff that he is seeing, trying to, uh, trying to, trying to dialogue with them about this, trying to talk to them about the person of Jesus. And then we are even told he goes into the marketplace, the place where probably most of the idols were to be found. It was like if you went to the high V at College Square, and there were just hundreds and hundreds of idols to gods all over the place. This is where Paul goes. He had, back in the day, if you, had to, if you wanted to have a public conversation, you went into the halls of hy V, right? This is how it happened. It wasn't just to get salt and pepper. And he goes into the marketplace where all these diverse idols are, and there he begins to debate whoever he can find about all the gods he is seeing, because he's clearly worked up trying to tell them about the one true God, the God who created everything, who has been revealed to us through the crucified and resurrected Christ. This is what Paul is doing. And we are told that he does this so much that he draws the attention of the great philosophers of of this day. And they begin to come down from their high and lofty places to debate him in the market. The, the, the The schools of philosophy that come down to debate him are actually mentioned in the text, the Epicureans and the Stoics come down to the market and they take up issue with Paul. And apparently it comes to a head. There's something happened and it comes to a head and he is brought before the Areopagus, which was not just a fun place to have a conversation. It was actually the highest court in Athens and he is asked to explain himself. So there are some stakes here. Now, we can sometimes read this and think that what, that what was taking place was kind of a nice conversation, but I assure you that it was tense, to say the least. In Athens, to teach an unsolicited philosophy or to preach about an unknown god was actually illegal. Socrates, anybody know that name? He's the great Greek philosopher. He was brought before the Areopagus once uh, in Athens and condemned to death for denying Athens' gods. So there are some stakes as Paul stands before the Areopagus. It could go bad, and Paul knows it. But deep within him is this desire to preach the truth of the resurrected Christ wherever it is that Christ is not known. And so he stands before a bunch of guys in toga dresses, which is clear, which we know they wore, 
which is funny to me because I'm sure it was comfortable, but it wouldn't be hard for me to take somebody seriously having a conversation in a toga. And he stands before them and he proclaims the good news. And he proclaims to them a God of whom they had never heard. And in verses 22 through 29, he proclaims it with wisdom and with boldness and with clarity. Now, this speech that Paul gives in Athens is one of, if not the most, commented on passages in all of Acts. For hundreds of years, scholars and pastors have been weighing in on what Paul says here to these guys and girls. But what stands out to everyone who reads this passage is it is both, is both the generosity and understanding that Paul displays in his presentation, but also the kind of clarity and boldness that he speaks with. He does not shade his message to accommodate the sensibilities of his hearers at the cost of his message, but he does contextualize. He does place what he says within a discernible frame of reference so that his audience can both clearly see and understand what he is speaking about in their own language, in their own culture, in their own context. What Paul does here is kind of a master class in what it looks like to communicate the message of Jesus with wisdom by first understanding his audience and then generously seeking to find common ground while maintaining the clarity and boldness of his message. And for us, I think what Paul does here can help. In our culture, it can help to maintain what the, theolo- the theologian Fleming Rutledge calls a kind of generous orthodoxy, a generous orthodoxy. Rutledge explains what she means by this term by saying this, and I believe this is on the screen. Christian faith should, by definition, always be generous as our God is generous, lavish in his creation binding himself in an unconditional covenant, revealing himself in the calling of a people, self-sacrificing in the death of his son, prodigal in the gifts of the Spirit, justifying the ungodly, and indeed offending the righteous by by the indiscriminate nature of his favor. True Christian orthodoxy, therefore, cannot be narrow, pinched, or defensive, but always spacious, adventurous, and unafraid. I love that part. True Christian orthodoxy, therefore, cannot be narrow, pinched, or defensive, but always spacious, adventurous, and unafraid. And too often, we can allow our faith to grow narrow and pinched, can't we? I think we all feel a kind of pressure to do that from time to time, whether it's from fear or social pressure or a culture of faith that says that we do have to narrow, we do have to restrict. And often we can allow our faith to kind of grow narrow. We can grow afraid that we may lose something in a conversation or in an interaction. And I don't know about you, but I want to have a faith that is spacious and generous and unafraid. And I think Paul's interaction with the Areopagus can teach us how to live out just this type of generous Christian orthodoxy, one that is spacious, one that is adventurous. So, if you're with me, we can look specifically at Paul's conversation for a moment here and see exactly why it is that Paul demonstrates for us this kind of generous orthodoxy, this orthodoxy that is both generous and rigorous, that is, um, that is open and contextual but also clear and bold. 
So first, Paul proclaims the good news about Jesus and the resurrection with wisdom by understanding who he was speaking to and seeking to find common ground. Paul has this deep understanding of the people he's speaking with. In verses 24 through 31, Paul gives us a masterclass in understanding the ideas and the people to whom he is speaking. Those eight verses are actually so packed with content and so precise that we don't have time to break it all down this morning. If Yeah, we don't. Definitely don't have time to break it all down this morning. In the span of just a few sentences, Paul directly addresses different groups that were listening to him. He finds points of commonality and difference with both Stoic and Epicurean philosophy, and he even quotes some of their philosophers to them, which is fascinating. And for those who worship idols, those who, by, for, that he was greatly distressed by, he, even, by, even those he finds some common ground upon which to have a discussion. He is masterful in his understanding of who he is speaking to, and this is so instructive, I think, for us. He is not winging haymakers here, right? He is, he is not assuming the people he is ta- are talking to are stupid or evil. He is attempting to build bridges by leading with understanding. And those who follow Christ must be, above all, people of the world, uh, must be above all people of the world who are willing to both affirm the good in what we see in the world and find common ground with those we disagree. This should be a hallmark of what it means to follow Christ in the world. It is the only way to have a conversation, and it is the only way to be heard, actually. And the best way to build commonality and understanding is through sensitive and caring relationships, I have found. And here's the question, then. If the, one of the best ways... To build commonality and understanding is through sensitive and caring relationships. The question is, do I have any relationships with people who think differently than I do? That's a good question. Who believe differently than I do? Who act differently than I do? And can I both learn from them while simultaneously not compromising the important aspects of what I believe? This is hard, but it's important. A few years ago, there was a prominent pastor in America, and he got in big trouble. uh, I don't know if he got in big trouble, but it seemed like he got in a little bit of hot water because he he was hosting a series of dialogues between Christians and Muslims. Maybe you heard about this. Maybe you didn't. And he caught a lot of flack from this from from a lot of people within the context of American Christian culture. And at the time, I didn't really understand why why it was that he was, get, he was catching flack. Some people were accusing him of actually like kind of giving up his, his, um, his faith or his, his um, allegiance to the gospel. But what I came to realize is that I think it was bec- the reason he caught all this flack was because many in American culture saw or see Muslim people as the enemy rather than seeing them as people who are desperately loved. I think a dialogue about religious difference is actually a perfect place to begin to discuss both difference and commonality, and that can help us to both understand and build bridges with those who think differently than us. Yes, Paul was distressed by the idolatry he saw in Athens. He thought it was a problem, but he did not let that get in the way of his conversation. And we also should never let difference get in the way of understanding and love. Do we hold a faith that is spacious and generous, and strong, or not? 
Or is it thin? Is it flimsy? Can it be blown by the wind? Is it open to attack? In Paul's willingness to build bridges of understanding through finding common ground, Paul displays a faith that is strong enough to bear up under the weight of other people's ideas. This is what he does by building bridges and leading with understanding. And the second thing Paul does in this passage, in his presentation to the, to, to the Areopagus, is that Paul proclaims the good news about Jesus and the resurrection with both boldness and clarity. Paul had a kind of firm grasp on what he was talking about and what he thought as well as where his belief differed from the beliefs of his audience. And he did not shy away from that difference. He did not, uh, he did not break relationship over that difference, but he uh, expertly evaluated that difference and presented it in a way that was intelligible, that was able to be understood by his audience. And the primary difference, the, the primary area of difference where Paul, that Paul brings out in this conversation is on the issue of the resurrection, on the issue of the resurrection. In the ancient world, this is important for us to understand if we're going to understand this passage, that in the ancient world, the idea of the resurrection was a scandalous idea. It was scandalous and it was also kind of absurd. Everyone in the ancient Greek world knew that if, you, if anybody who died stayed dead, and they wanted it that way. For both philosophers and the religious among the Areopagus, resurrection was simply a stupid idea. It didn't make any sense. And it seemed to be the primary point of, content, of contention with Paul and his audience. It is mentioned in verse 18, verse 31, and verse 32. And yet Paul is quick to affirm it, even though he knows that this idea to his audience will cause them to scoff. Yet he still brings it up. It is the truth of the gospel, and he is unmoved in his affirmation of it. And so while Paul is generous in his presentation in the, of the gospel, he is also courageous in his uh, assertion of orthodoxy, in his assertion of what he believes. And, while, and Christians, in the same way, in our day, must be generous in our approach to faith. We also must be, have a kind of courageous orthodoxy. That we are affirming the truths of the message of the gospel with both clarity and boldness in love. In Romans 1.16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of life. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He had a firm grasp on what it was he believed. He understood the differences between what he believed and what others believed. And that allowed him to, uh, to bring that difference to bear. It allowed him to affirm the message of the gospel with both, with both boldness and uh, complexity even. And it helped him to present the gospel in a way that led to transformation. And what I have found is that many of us Christians are great with the idea of being generous, but not necessarily equipped to share the message of Jesus with clarity. 
because we don't necessarily know what the gospel entails or how or how and why it is important or how it actually applies to modern American life. We're, we're a little foggy on that particular issue. Religious faith is not privatized. It is not simply something that I believe for myself that, that makes me feel good. Rather, Paul's message to the Areopagus shows us that the gospel, the good news about a resurrected Jesus, is for everyone. It is for the entirety of the world, and it is to be shared both with clarity and boldness in love through relationship. And to get to this place, there has to be a level of understanding on our part. A level of clarity when we share the good news of Jesus that allows us to do that with boldness and in love, but with clarity. And one of the best ways I know to really figure out what it is we are talking about when we are talking about the message of Jesus so that we can get clear about it, so that we can share it with both clarity and boldness, is something called the Apostles' Creed. Are any of you familiar with the Apostles' Creed? You can raise a hand. The Apostles' Creed is one of the earliest creeds of the church. We actually don't know when it, who, who made it up. I'm assuming it was the Apostles. We, don't know, we, don't, we, have, uh, we have some records of when it was first used by the church, but we don't know exactly where it came from. We just know it's a very, very, very old creed. Now, what a creed is is, is a doctrinal formation. It's, it's, a helpful, it's a helpful and kind of concise way to help Christians understand what it is they believe, what's important about the message of Jesus, and how to communicate it. So early Christians would memorize things like the Apostles' Creed in order to get clear on what it, what it is the message of Jesus is, what, what, where, what areas in this, uh, in this gospel uh, are important, are central, and what areas are peripheral. So, uh, t- this morning, what I'm just going to do is read the Apostles' Creed for us and, uh, as a means of helping us kind of get a little clarity. And I would encourage you, just look this up, type in Apostles' Creed, Creed in Google, and you can actually go through it. One of, the, one of the best ways to get clarity on what Christians believe is simply to study the Apostles' Creed and to say, what does this mean? These are the essentials of our faith, and this is what it means uh, to communicate the good news of Jesus with both clarity and boldness. So, this is the Apostles' Creed. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the, in the Holy Spirit the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. What a beautiful and concise summation of what it is Christians believe. And this message, this message that is basically summed up in the just couple of short sentences there in the Apostles' Creed is the message of the gospel. It is the message of the gospel that Paul says, leads to life. And it is the message of the gospel that we are both empowered and commanded to carry out into our world. We are not to carry it as a hammer to beat people over the head, right? But we are to carry it nonetheless. 
to communicate the good news, the saving grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, the reality of the triune God, the, the, the pain in the, of Jesus' death and the victory of his resurrection, all so that we could be unified with Christ. This is the message of the gospel, and it is one that we are called to become clear on and bold with in love out into our world. And so my encouragement today as we, uh, as we conclude is just that this message, this particular message, the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is to be communicated. We've been looking through the book of Acts, haven't we, this summer? And one thing that you can't help but be convinced by as you read through the book of Acts is this kind of ongoing, propulsive, forward movement of this message. It just goes and goes and goes. It's like, it's like a diesel engine, right? It just like never stops going. And what we quickly discover when, uh, what I am confronted with, I should say, when I read this message is just the natural propulsive nature of this message in the book of Acts, coupled with the kind of insular nature of this message in 21st century America. The way in which this message moves across boundaries and across borders in the book of Acts, in the way that I am tempted as a kind of private American citizen to keep my private faith within the four private walls of my own private life. And yet the message of Jesus always goes in the book of Acts. And the church, us, those who have inherited this message, are also called to carry it out, to participate with it as it goes. And I honestly think, and part of my struggle throughout my Christian life has been that there have been ways in which this message has been shared throughout the history of the church, and just within the last hundred years or so, that have been discouraging to me. Because they have been narrow, they have been flimsy, they have not been generous, they have not been broad, they have not been loving even. And so it has caused, I think, many in America, many in America to kind of shrink back from the boldness of the proclamation. And what I would encourage us in today is that this message is not narrow, it is not short-sighted, it is not retrograde. It is broad. It is generous. It is all-encompassing. And it is specific. And it is bold. And it should be shared with clarity. And if we are able to move out into our world with that posture, a posture that embraces all people to share the message of Jesus with all people, I believe, through the power of the Spirit, I believe we can, can, we can see in our particular lives this message begin to take on that propulsive nature it be, it, to begin to move in a way that maybe we've never seen it move before. The message of Jesus is one that moves, and sometimes it doesn't even feel like we're moving it. Sometimes it just feels like it is going and we are along for the ride. And my prayer for us today is that we would be a people who could kind of thread the needle, thread the needle, to thread the needle of uh, being afraid or cloistered from culture, 
rather being more generous, but still sharing the message of Jesus with both boldness and clarity. This turns out to be a difficult thing, and it's not one that everyone does well, but it's one that all people within the church are called to. All of us are. And so as we go today, I just want to pray for us as a community that we would step out into our world this week. We'd step outside the walls of this church, that, that we would be able to carry this message with both clarity and with boldness and with love everywhere we go. That people would, when people would talk about the message of Jesus that we'd carry, they would say it was, it was a kind of generous and loving message, and, but that it brought life. So let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we thank you for bringing us all here together today. We ask that as we go from this place, God, that your uh, goodness and your love and your spirit would go with us. Father, I pray specifically for those people in this place who have maybe struggled with the idea of the message of Jesus. Maybe they have struggled to share it. Maybe they've been nervous about taking that step of faith. Maybe they were insecure about their ability to know what it is that the gospel is and how to share it. God, I pray that you would give them uh, boldness and clarity, God, this week and this month as they go out into their world. That as, as we walk out into a hurting world, a world that is in desperate need of this message, God, that you would empower us to share the good news of Jesus in love through relationship. And God, I pray uh, really for us this morning that you would enable us to be kingdom people who carry this kingdom message wherever it is that we go, that, that it would be said of us that, that our love is broad and that our message is generous, and that, but that we carry the message of Jesus with both specificity and with boldness. Now, God, as we go, uh, would your spirit be with us? Would you carry us uh, through this week? And would you bring us back together next week with rejoicing? And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Today is the first Sunday of the month, which means we're receiving our uh, compassion offering this week. So uh, as you go, uh, I'd